Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Catherine Todris. She's the author of a new book called Black Snake, Standing Rock, the Dakota Access Pipeline, and Environmental Justice. The book is out now through the University of Nebraska Press, and we are excited to have her join us for the show today. Kate, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So, Kate, before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. And let me first just thank you again so much, Ryan, for having me on today. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, so I'm a Midwesterner. I'm also a human rights lawyer by training. So my work has been on health and human rights globally, particularly looking at marginalized populations. I've done research and advocacy um, as a researcher at Human Rights Watch, working on prison health in Africa looking at access to HIV prevention and treatment for migrants, and looking at police abuses and HIV prevention issues in New York City. So Kate, how did you come to write this book? What was the inspiration behind it? Well, several years ago, when I was still a researcher with Human Rights Watch, I began to work more on human rights issues in the U.S., including particularly police abuse and HIV prevention issues in New York. And as I was working more on U.S. human rights issues, I became increasingly interested in understanding one of the human rights issues that seemed really foundational to this country, which was the genocide of Native Americans. Um, At the same time, the resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline was taking off near the Standing Rock Reservation. Now, I know it's been a few years, uh, so let me just just go back a little bit there. Uh, The Dakota Access Pipeline, you may remember, was this huge $3.8 billion project, and it was designed to carry around 570,000 barrels of crude oil a day, running from the Bakken oil fields in North North Dakota down to Illinois. Now, the pipeline was also set to cross a portion of the Missouri River, Lake Oahe, which was directly upstream from the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. And activists from Standing Rock and the neighboring Cheyenne River Reservation, they decided to fight back by creating a camp near the planned site of the pipeline. And in the summer of 2016, on the banks of the Cannonball River, the camp began to grow from just a few people at the very beginning um, to ultimately around 10,000. So there were youth leaders um, from from Standing Rock and Cheyenne River who set off on runs across, across the West and later across the country to draw attention to the cause, word spread on social media. Um, And as it did, environmental activists Standing Rock Sioux leaders and tribe members, Native allies, even celebrities all poured in. Um, And as I began to learn more about this movement and began to interview the people involved, I came to really think of this and to realize that we were living through a modern day human rights movement of indigenous people. And it spoke to me. It really spoke to me because the fight that these leaders were going through combined health and human rights and came down to a few issues that I thought were really crucial. Um, the issues of sovereignty, of environmental justice, and comp- climate change. Right, right. You know, 
for our listeners, there's been activities that have been ongoing on, around the Dakota Access Pipeline since those protests. Could you bring people up to speed a little bit for who haven't been following the day-to-day? Uh, what is the current state of affairs? Absolutely. So after that, um, at, in the fall of 2016 and the winter of 2016, the camp continued to grow. Um, and towards the end of the Obama administration in December of 2016, the water protectors, which is what the activists who had gathered um, at st- the camps at Standing Rock gathered, called themselves, they really achieved a stunning victory. And that was that the U.S. Army Corps announced they would not grant the easement, the permission for the Dakota Access Pipeline to cross the Missouri River upstream from Standing Rock. Instead, they were going to embark upon and creating an environmental impact statement which is what the water protectors have been fighting for all along. And this was a really unprecedented victory. It was a validation not only of the Standing Rock Sioux, but also of the movement that had coalesced around this issue. But as we all know, soon after that, um, President Donald Trump took office. And a few days into his administration, um, he signed a presidential memorandum, which instructed the Army Corps to expedite the approval process for the unbuilt section of the pipeline. And by early February, the Corps had reversed its earlier decision and granted the easement, and the pipeline company immediately began construction on that crucial Missouri River crossing. By late February, local law enforcement had shut down the main camp near Standing Rock um, and arrested some lingering water protectors. And that was really the end of the camps near Standing Rock. Now, this battle has continued in the courts, though, for these last four years, Um, The Dakota Access Pipeline recently marked the milestone of having been in service for four years, and it is indeed carrying 570,000 barrels of oil a day from the Bakken oil fields in the Northern Plains. And that's around 40% of the Bakken's oil output and around 5% of the oil produced in the entire U.S. The operator has even sought to double the capacity of the pipeline, a move that the Standing Rock Sioux have strenuously opposed. But even while this oil has continued to flow, the Standing Rock Sioux and their allies and their lawyers from the nonprofit Earth Justice have continued to fight the pipeline in the courts. So beginning in 2016, when things were heating up at the camps, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, represented by Earth Justice, filed suit against the U.S. Army Corps for violating the National Historic Preservation Act and other laws. There have been significant victories in this now long-running case over the years, um, and federal courts have ordered a new full environmental impact statement to consider the risks the pipeline poses to the tribe and also to evaluate uh, alternative routes. Um, now, they've declined They've declined to shut down the pipeline pending this review, uh, but the Dakota Access Pipeline is currently operating without a permit, and it has been since last year when a federal judge revoked the permit for its crossing under Lake Oahe, the section of the Missouri River right upstream from Standing Rock. And now the Army Corps is undertaking this environmental review. It's indicated that it'll be finished around March 2022. The federal judge hearing the lawsuit brought by the Standing Rock Sioux recently dismissed the case for the time being after having expressed surprise that the Army Corps had allowed oil to flow through the pipeline and cross that crucial waterway without federal authorization. So the the oil is currently running through the pipeline. The case continues through the courts. Um, or and has continued for many years now through the courts. And we're currently seeing this reevaluation by the Army Corps um, 
of the environmental impact. And so I think part of the story here is is yet to be written, um, and we'll know more in the coming months. Um, however, the activists who have opposed the pipeline have never given up their fight or the hope that the pipeline will be defeated. There was hope that the change in presidential administration earlier this year um, would lead the Biden administration to take a different approach to the pipeline than the Trump administration had. Um, and while the Biden administration has made commitments on respecting tribal sovereignty and fighting climate change and on environmental justice, um, and they have made moves like rescinding the federal permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, thus far they have declined to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline pending this environmental review. So that's where we stand today, but um, there will be more to come, certainly, in this story. Right. And you can see that as you're writing the book as well, right? You have an afterword, but you also have an epilogue, and you yes. can start to see how things are actually <laughs> unfolding um, as you're wrapping up the book and as you're, as you're writing it. But I want to take a minute and just go back, because one of the things I particularly like about this book is that you write about Standing Rock from the perspective of four indigenous women. And I know they're sure to come up throughout our conversation, uh, but I wonder if you could just get our listeners started and, and tell us a little bit about who these women are, how you came to know them and their stories, and how their perspectives uh, came to influence the way you thought about these protests. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So Black Snake really tries to tell this story from the perspective of these four indigenous leaders, and to be able to try to tell the story from their perspective was such a privilege, and I was so honored that they shared their stories with me. Um, as, as I began to learn more about this movement, I reached out to them and to many others to interview them as part of my research to understand the movement that we were living through and their role in it against the pipeline. I took numerous trips to North and South Dakota, um, also interviewed people in New York and Washington. And these four leaders really stood out to me in their stories as, as crucial to the story of the pipeline um, and and also a really um, a, a moving way to be able to tell the story of the pipeline um, and the people who were fighting against it and their history. So um, just to, to walk you through who the four of them are, let me start where the book starts. Uh, first with Lisa DeVille. So Lisa was born in Mandaree, North Dakota. It's a tiny town on the Fort Berthold Reservation in northwestern North Dakota, and it's home of the Mandan, Hadatsa, and Arikara Nation. And it's, it's really at the heart of that rich Bakken shale oil formation. Over the last um, more than a decade, Fort Berthold has been ground zero in the fracking boom that's taken this new technology to tap into previously inaccessible stores of oil. Previously, Fort Berthold's population was, was living in poverty, and Fort Berthold's government opened the reservation to oil development. And since then, the tribe has has made billions in revenues and in taxes, um, but unfortunately has also paid the price in environmental devastation. Uh, so, when you when you travel to Fort Berthold, drive drive along the highway on your way, and you see the the sky glowing, um, and you see these flames flickering, um, because now there are thousands of oil and gas wells that dot the reservations, and they flare off their excess methane day and night. Um, so you see these huge flames as you drive through this beautiful, beautiful landscape. As one activist described it to me, it's called it's it's like Kuwait on fire. And and this reservation where Lisa Deville lives is what activists would call the head of the Black Snake, the head of the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is where this is 
part of where the oil comes from that flows through the pipeline. Um, and uh, Lisa, who had previously worked in housing, is someone who has, along with, with some others on Fort Berthold, been challenging the environmental price that fracking in Fort Berthold has, has brought to the people who live there. So um, the story she tells is that in around uh, 2010, she um, went over to a friend's home and it was December, the, there was snow on the ground and her friend was watching the snow turn this strange yellow color. And Lisa looked at it and she said, I don't know what could be causing that, but maybe it has something to do with these flares, these huge plumes of, um, of flame coming, coming from where oil, oil, oil is being dri- drilled. Um, and she started to ask questions and she started, she went back to school in environmental science and, and she ended up that journey as one of the founders of Fort Berthold Protectors of Water and Earth Rights, Fort Berthold Power, which calls for better regulation of the fracking industry. Now, one of Fort Berthold Power's first moves after it was created in 2015 um, was to, having been frustrated by um, the fracking wastewater spills and the environmental damage that she'd seen on Fort Berthold, Lisa went to testify at a public hearing about a new pipeline. And this one was called Dakota Access. It was going to run a few miles from her house on Fort Berthold under a buffalo ranch owned by the Mandan Hidatsa and Arikara Nation, just outside of the reservation's boundaries. She urged the North Dakota Public Service Commission to reject the pipeline. Um, and, and, and so that's really where this, this book, the story in this book starts with, with the origins of the oil um, up in the Bakken on the Fort Berthold Reservation and some activists calls to not allow the pipeline even up there. Now, at the, at the same time, um, little did Lisa know, behind the scenes, approvals for the pipeline were already underway. Um, and and there were also, and, and so it was actually approved by the Nindatsa and Arikara Nation um, to run near their reservation. But activists and leaders, um, tribal leaders down on Standing Rock, were also becoming aware of this pipeline and considering it and had decided to take a stand against it. Um, and so as we move through the book uh, down to Standing Rock, we see um, uh, young, very, very young activists like Jacelyn Charger, who comes from the Cheyenne River Reservation in South Dakota. Now, Jacelyn was only 19 um, at the time, but she and her cousin, Joseph White Eyes, who was only 20, got a phone call. They got a phone call from their mentor, Joy Brown, who together had worked with them on the Keystone XL fight. Um, the Keystone XL pipeline was set to run near the Cheyenne River Reservation in, in South Dakota. And Joy asked them to come up to the Standing Rock Reservation to talk about the Keystone XL fight and, and what they had done about it. Um, and so Jacelyn and Joseph Travert followed up there with Joy. Jacelyn had had a very hard life, but she had channeled that difficult childhood into this fierce community activism. She and Joseph had formed a youth group on Shine River to combat an epidemic of suicide among their friends. And they traveled with members of their youth group up to educate members of Standing Rock about the Keystone XL fight. And at their meeting, uh, she could see the surprise of the elders who had assembled there at how young they were, but still how dedicated these activists were. And at that meeting, um, Joy Brown, uh, J- Jacelyn's mentor, suggested that 
Standing Rock create a protest camp? People said, what do we do about this pipeline? She said, let's create a camp. And LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, who was a tribal historian for the Standing Rock Sioux, she stood up and volunteered her own land on the edge of the Missouri River near the town of Cannonball. Um, her son was buried on the land, and she couldn't bear the thought of a pipeline running near his grave. And that was really the start of the camp, which became this sacred stone camp on the Standing Rock Reservation, uh, right near where the pipeline was set to run. Um, and so uh, together they set up this camp. On April, in April 2016, Joy was the first camper at the Sacred Stone Camp on LaDonna's family's land overlooking the Cannonball River. Jaisalyn, Joseph, and some of the others, others joined a few days later. And that was the group that came together. It was small at first, later growing, but it was a peaceful, prayerful group that called themselves water protectors. LaDonna drove over every day with food and water and blankets. Um, and before long, the fourth leader, whose real story is highlighted in this book, arrived on the scene. Her name is Candy White. She's an environmental activist originally from Fort Berthold, who has been, been very vocal in speaking out against fracking on Fort Berthold, and um, who is an expert on climate change and fracking. She works for the Indigenous Environmental Network. And she ended up spending months at the camp organizing, live streaming it and sharing it with the world. And then after the camps closed in February 2017, she helped to organize the Native Nations March in Washington, D.C. And she's traveled the world to the United Nations, to climate conferences, to shareholder meetings, urging divestment from the pipeline. And then always back to her family home in Fort Berthholder, also where she continues to urge the tribe to consider alternatives to fracking. Um, and you really see the, the progression after the camp's close in Candy's work um, as the people, the, the activists who, who really became galvanized at Standing Rock, continuing their work both against the pipeline and against, and against, um, against, against, against Dakota Access Pipeline and other pipelines, but also working on projects to create healthy, sustainable indigenous communities using renewable energy. And she continues to work on a project on Fort Berthold called Just Transitions that does just that. Wow. Yeah, that's excellent. I, one of the things I wanted to ask you is that I think what people remember uh, who weren't there at the protest, one of the things they remember from the media is uh, the response um, and a strong sort of militarization of the response. And I actually don't think that that has received uh, enough attention in sort of the legacy of thinking about Standing Rock. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because you do talk in your book um, about the militarization of the response to these protesters uh, and to what was actually happening on the ground and, you know, water protectors. Oh, absolutely. Well, as, as I said, it, it began as a very peaceful, prayerful camp. Um, and the water protectors were really dedicated to nonviolence and nonviolent direct action. But let, let me tell you the story of September 3rd, which was the Saturday of Labor Day weekend in 2016. And this is the story that LaDonna Allard told me. So on that morning, uh, LaDonna Allard was giving an interview to Amy Goodman, a journalist from Democracy Now!, about LaDonna's great-great-grandmother, who, like ancestors of many Cannonball residents, was a survivor of the Whitestone Massacre, which was the U.S. Army's 1863 slaying of hundreds of Native Americans. And as she was speaking to Amy Goodman about the Whitestone Massacre, LaDonna's phone rang. And it was a friend from Cannonball calling. And the friend said, LaDonna, the bulldozers are here, and they're taking out the grave sites. What do we do? And she was absolutely incredulous. She said, stop them. And she, she uh, quickly, politely ended the interview 
and jumped in her truck to go to the front line. And where she went was she went to an area where um, just just the day before in their lawsuit, the Standing Rock Sioux had pointed out that there were sacred sites, there were graves on this land. And actually, um, the pipeline the pipeline company had begun digging there just immediately after receiving um, this report to the court the day before. Now, as LaDonna pulled up, she saw women and children lining the fence, watching these bulldozers work in this area that had been identified as having sacred sites. The bulldozers worked, churning up the earth. A helicopter was overhead. And LaDonna got out of her truck. A friend came up to her and cried and said, "We're dig- they're digging the graves. Um, LaDonna kept walking. What she saw was a man getting out of a white truck and pepper spraying the whole line of water protectors. She saw private security contractors coming towards the water protectors with dogs, enormous German shepherds lunging and biting. People were screaming. And LaDonna saw these, these German shepherds with their mouths dripping with blood. And all she could think was, where am I? And is this America? Is this who we are? She went to a policeman standing on the road. And she asked the policeman to stop them, to stop the dog handlers. And he said, no, I'm only here to direct traffic. Um, And that was really sort of the beginning, I think, of a shift in the response to to the water protectors and and to this movement. Now, these were were private security contractors with the dogs who had been brought in by the pipeline company. But the the water protectors faced violent resistance from local law enforcement which ultimately used military-style gear and weapons against them. I think those are some of the pictures that you would have seen in the the news reports from the time. You saw in the fall of 2016, the Morton County Sheriff's Department increasingly leading local law enforcement in this brutal crackdown against the peaceful water protectors using, um, in sub-freezing temperatures, they stood behind concrete barriers reinforced with razor wire and sprayed the water protectors with this freezing weaponized water, ironically, given that the water protectors were fighting for, for clean water. Um, they fired on them with tear gas canisters and rubber bullets. That fall, there was one young woman who was a water protector who nearly lost her arm after being hit by what water protectors saw as a police concussion grenade. Another lost sight in her eye. Ultimately, more than 800 people were arrested. So you have that response from um, local law enforcement. At the same time, um, the pipeline company hired private security. So in the wake of these of, of that Labor Day weekend, the dog attacks, um, the pipeline company actually hired another private security firm called Tiger Swan, which is a private security firm with experience in counterterrorism operations in Iraq and Afghanistan to use military-style counterterrorism tactics against these peaceful water protectors. And Tiger Swan's operations, they involved this extensive and invasive surveillance. And we know this because subsequently um, their reports, many of them were leaked um, to the publication The Intercept, which published them. And so you can see in those reports that Tiger Swan's operations involved this this surveillance in person, people on the ground um, and on social media. And really one of the most insidious parts of their operations, which I should mention were conducted without a license in North Dakota, involved this long-term plan to infiltrate the camps. Um, And Tiger Swan had hired agents to build the trust of activists, to exploit rifts, to try to gain information about their plans. Um, And so you see both the local law enforcement and you see this private security response. 
Now, um, the movement at Standing Rock was was a, a very positive model, I think, in many, many ways. But unfortunately, the non-lethal force that the law enforcement officers used at Standing Rock, while it was not new, we can see in the years since it's continued to gain tractions as a mean of, means of crowd control, um, particularly in response to protests decrying pr- police brutality, demanding racial justice. So, um, you know, that was certainly something we saw back in 2016 and in the, in the fall and winter of 2016 in Standing Rock and that we continue to see in other contexts today. Yeah, the the development of those is fascinating. And I think that, you know, the, the historian in me would actually mm-hmm. want to know a little bit about what you talk about in the book, about some of the legacies and traditions and, and precursors on which um, this, you know, this movement emerges out of um, and some of that you know, what is new about Standing Rock? Uh, what is sort of building on earlier histories? Yeah, so you know, on the one hand, this movement that began at Standing Rock, it was one more battle in the ongoing war that Indigenous people have been fighting against treaty rights abuses, racism, environmental injustice for a long time. I remember speaking with one activist from Cheyenne River, and she said to me that the Dakota Access Pipeline it's just one more, it's one more fight that I've taken part in, in a long, long line of these fights. Um, and in many ways, this was a conflict that had been even centuries in the making. You know, Standing Rock was part of the Great Sioux Reservation, which was established by the 1851 and 1858, Fort La- 18, sorry, 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties. Um, and then that reservation was whittled away for years after in this really shameful history of misdealing by the U.S. government. The land that the pipeline itself was set to cross sat within boundaries of the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, and it was never ceded. It was never it was never ceded by the Standing Rock Sioux. Um, but at the same time, it had been taken years earlier from the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. The Army Corps had used the land to build a dam, which flooded large parts of the Standing Rock Reservation in a way that was devastating for many of the residents. Um, so there's this longstanding sovereignty issue. Uh, and the movement at Standing Rock really fit into the, to a long history of indigenous resistance against settlers, against dams and pipelines from preceding decades. So you have the 18-month occupation beginning in, in 1969 of Alcatraz Island by Indians of all tribes. You have the fish-ins of the 1960s and 70s by Native Americans asserting their treaty rights to fish around the Puget Sound. The 1973 occupation by the American Indian Movement of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. You have the Idle No More movement in 2012 um, against infringements of indigenous treaty rights in Canada. So you have this long history of indigenous resistance that Standing Rock was building on. The Standing Rock camps also, of course, I've mentioned, grew out directly out of the fight over the Keystone XL pipeline, which brought together indigenous leaders and environmental activists and and involved many, many of the same people who had been involved, involved in that fight. But on the other hand, the Standing Rock movement was something new. Um, it really kicked off a movement on an entirely new scale. It inspired thousands of people around the world who hadn't previously been aware of and involved in these issues to take action. And Native activists and allies, some, a new generation of them, many of them youth, there, you know, many, many of people like Jacelyn, who was only 19 at this time, who really were at the forefront of this Dakota Access Pipeline movement, were very young. And this was, um, you know, this was a campaign that really turned them into to activists. 
Um, and this brought together people in historic numbers and achieved a stunning, even though it was a short-lived, success in getting the easement denied and getting the environmental impact statement declared by the Obama administration. Um, more than 300 tribes came and planted their flags at Standing Rock at the time of the camps. As I mentioned, the camp became, grew to about 10,000 people, over, overflowing to become multiple camps on land owned by the Army Corps also. It was the first gathering of the seven council fires of the Sioux Nation, the Ocheti Shekohen, in 140 years. Um, it was the largest intertribal alliance on the continent in centuries and perhaps in all of history. So this opposition to a single pipeline developed into this indigenous-led movement that really expanded the narrative over environmental justice and environmental issues to include justice to Native nations and really highlighted the ways in which mistreatment of Native nations in the United States continues to occur. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a lot of lessons, I think, and takeaways and even legacies to be learned here. And I think some of those may be more hopeful than others. I wondered if you could speak to that, if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, it's a good question. So, and I think... And I think we're, you know, as I said, the story is still being written. So I think I think we'll see see in the years to come as well. Um, Jan Hasselman, who is the lawyer from Earth Justice, who represented the Standing Rock Sioux in its lawsuit lawsuit against the pipeline company, uh, what he told me when I talked to him about this was that he he likes to think sometimes about the big anti nuclear protests in the 1970s that really came to a head around a power plant in New Hampshire. Um, now, in the short term, the protests around that power plant, the Seabrook nuclear power plant, they were unsuccessful. They generated a lot of global attention, but they did not succeed in stopping that power plant from being built. The, that particular power plant was built. But at the same time, it was one of the last nuclear power plants ever to be built in America. And he likes to think that the movement around Standing Rock could be the same, that even though the pipeline was built and the jury is still out on whether oil will continue to flow through this pipeline, as I said, well, that, that is still, still in doubt long-term. But even though the pipeline was built, is this part of a sea change in our thinking about becoming entrenched in this fossil fuel-based infrastructure? You know, is this part of a move away from that infrastructure? I think, I think, um, you know, it's still it's still to be seen, and that's something we'll see in the coming years. Now, in the meanwhile, indigenous activists and allies will continue to fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Pipelines really do leak. They maybe sooner, maybe later. The Dakota Access Pipeline leaked five times before it was um, in operation for six months, and as long as oil is flowing, it's just a matter of when there will be more. The operator of the Dakota Access Pipeline has spilled crude oil more often than any of its competitors, Reuters concluded. But the, the indigenous activists and their allies are going to continue to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, now, LaDonna Bravebull Allard, who was one of the founders of the Stan Sacred Stone Camp at Standing Rock, and she really helped it grow from a small group of teepees in the slushy ground to a gathering of thousands that became this movement. She passed away in April. Uh, but one thing that LaDonna had said to me um, when, through the interviews for this book was that she knew that the fight of the pipeline would continue as long as oil was flowing through it. And what she said was, it's my home. She said, I'm not going to back down. 
And when I'm gone, my daughter will be standing there and my granddaughter and all the generations after. And I think that really speaks to the continued the, the continued activism that's going to continue on this issue as long as oil continues to flow through the pipeline. Yeah. And Kate, when you were working on this book, I always wonder for writers, did you have a sense of what readers might take away or an idea of what you would hope they might take away? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think I think many people remember the news coverage of Standing Rock from around 2016, 2017, and maybe since then too. I think I was really conscious of wanting this book to tell the story from the perspective of some of the really incredible Native American leaders who were involved in the fight, really centering their experiences. I was also very conscious, and this was something that through my interview process, many of the people I spoke with asked me to center and asked me to emphasize, and I hope is a takeaway from the book, that this is a story of victory. It's a story of resilience. This is not a story of Native Americans who have been victims and victimized here. This is a story of people, even with with many odds stacked against them, with the United States government and large companies at times against them, um, who have built, who built this enormous movement, who stalled a pipeline project, won a major victory for the thousands of water protectors who had gathered. Um, that was a temporary victory, but ultimately now are still seeing this reevaluation and this new environmental impact statement. And so this was a movement that that was not a movement of people being victimized, but it was a movement of strength. And this is a story of strength and resistance and resilience, not just in the outcome to the pipeline, um, but also in seeing the ways in which the activists who have been involved in Standing Rock have taken, who've carried on this work in the time since the camps at Standing Rock have closed. Um, so you see the voices of many of these indigenous leaders, including Lisa Deville, Jacelyn Charger, LaDonna Allard, and Candy White, who are who are centered in the book, were really raised by the movement and today are stronger than ever on environmental issues. Um, but also you see the work that I mentioned the Candy and the Indigenous Environmental Network are doing around just transitions, switching to renewable energy sources, teaching people to return to the ways of their ancestors, also work by organizations like the Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, um, trying to rethink Lakota communities and to build really regenerative communities, transitions to solar power by several projects on Standing Rock by people who are involved in, in the movement against the pipeline. These really could serve as a model to everyone, and they're part of the legacy of the movement at Standing Rock. So no matter what the ultimate outcome is for the pipeline itself. Um, this is a story of strength and resistance and really resilience. And I think I hope that that's what people would take away from the book. Yeah, yeah. And you do a good job of that. And I was wondering, you know, in the course of your research, in the course of your interviews, in the course of putting this together, writing this out, you know, what surprised you the most? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, yeah, there were. I think it, I think a couple of things really stand out to me. Um, first, learning more about the source of the oil flowing through the pipeline, because I, be, I came at this looking more at the movement around um, movement around around the pipeline itself uh, from the perspective of the environmental injustice of the pipeline crossing so close to the Standing Rock 
self-preservation and threatening its sacred sites and threatening its water. Um, while at the same time, the Army Corps had had decided that the pipeline could not cross in a route just north of Bismarck, um, the 92% white capital of North Dakota. And so I came at this more from an environmental justice perspective. Um, but I think learning more about the fracked oil in the pipeline and the environmental destruction that has accompanied it, I think were, were surprising and chilling to me. Um, you know, when Lisa, Lisa DeVille on Fort Berthold, when she goes outside, sometimes she feels the earth shake beneath her. You know, there are these flares, these flames shooting out of the earth in every direction. There's this smell of sulfur when the wind goes a certain direction. Um, it's, you know, in some ways traveling around, it looks almost like an apocalyptic landscape in this beautiful, beautiful terrain of farms and cattle. It's a very heavy environmental price of our dependence on fossil fuels. And I think to see the immediate effects on one community, from the oil wells to the flaring, to things also like the traffic accidents from the large oil trucks, the man camps of oil workers, the sexual abuse and the drugs that come into the community with those, and to learn about the longer-term health consequences and the damaging effects to air and water were certainly sobering to me. Um, but really second, I think doing a deeper dive into this story also brought home for me really the shocking nature of the lengths to which the private security firm hired by the pipeline company to sabotage and infiltrate the water protectors, the extreme lengths to which they went, which I mentioned previously. Um, but it's not just about the tear gas, the water cannons, the rubber bullets that you saw on the news used by local law enforcement. Um, and just to, to give a personal story to show how that really came home to me, you know, even in September 2018, I was, I was uh, at Standing Rock on a trip there at that time. This was more than a year and a half after the camps closed. I was visiting the site of the camps with LaDonna Allard. Um, and the grass has, had all grown back. There's a, there's a statue on the hill where Sacred Stone Camp was um, called Not Afraid to Look. It's a person, uh, a sculpture that was built to watch over the camp. It was watching over the sage plants and the family cemetery where LaDonna had recently buried her husband at that time. Um, and on the gateposts to what used to be the main camp, someone had written the words, we're still here, but there was a metal sign tacked up saying no trespassing, United States government property. But there was no one there. We were just looking at the site. We were just driving around while she showed me what the site was looking like today. And there we were out very, very far from other people, very, very far away from everything. And suddenly a small plane comes out and starts buzzing around us, starts circling around us. Um, this was a year and a half after the last camp closed. And LaDonna just looked at it dismissively and she said, it's a dapple plane. But it was, it was a kind of situation in which seeing other cars would have almost been more would have been surprising. But to have a plane circling around us in what appeared to be watching us at that time, was, it was astonishing to me. You know, as a human rights lawyer, I've, I've been subject to surveillance during human rights work in other contexts. But this was certainly jarring to me. And, and that was in a very small way. The activists who have been involved in this work have been living with this intrusion for years. LaDonna had somebody um, following her car for months, months after the camps ended. Um, when I went with Jacelyn Charger in 2018 to the site of the Keystone XL, pipe, where the pipeline was being um, 
prepared for pre-construction in, tw- in 2018, you know, a car immediately uh, started taking pictures of us and recorded our license plate. And just to be, be, be seeing that in a small way and, of course, learning more about it from them and from the documents, you know, really you see the personal toll that this kind of surveillance can take on the activists who are doing this courageous work over, over many years. Well, thanks. You know, Kate, this is a really wonderful book. And I, I do just want to ask you before we let you go, we've taken up some of your time today. Uh, is there anything that you're working on next? I, I know this book just came out. So I'm assuming <laughs> maybe some virtual, potentially in-person, uh, you know, book talks or something. But do I you have so. any other so. projects that you're thinking about um, and next steps? Yeah, well, thank you again so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this with you. And, and hopefully we'll um, be able to talk in person at some point and there will be some events in person in the future. Um, so at the moment, I'm working um, as a lawyer representing some children in the U.S. who are going through asylum proceedings, also doing some advocacy work on human rights issues. Um, but I'm also in the very early stages of exploring another book project. I think um, in this case, it'll be at the intersection of environmental justice and reproductive injustice issues, but that's early stages yet. So um, I'm, I'll definitely keep you posted on that in the months and years to come. But of course, I also um, am closely following the work of the incredible activists and the water protectors I got to know through the movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, following their work and supporting it where I can. And as I've said, I think this is a story in which there are new chapters still being written. There were there were new developments as the book was going to press even, and we kept adding on <laughs> parts to the end of it. And I think that that probably will be continuing for months and years to come. Um, so I look forward to seeing how that played out. Yeah, excellent. Well, keep us posted. Is there a website anyone can visit in order to find out more information? Sure. My website is... Uh, my name, www.katherinetodras.com. And I certainly will be um, posting updates uh, as on the book and, and with the pipeline as they come in. Well, excellent. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're happy to have you back anytime. Um, and I appreciate the chance to, to talk to you about this excellent book. Thank you again so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. You take care. Thanks. You too.